Meditation. 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 Depending on the quality of my mind. You know, there's good days and bad days. I mean, I feel like the waterfall of thoughts. Every now and then, a nice calm. I can't think of anything. This is Meditation in the City. The Shambhala New York Podcast. And I'm Dave, your host. Confidence. What do you think of when you think of the word confidence? I'll tell you what I think of. Deodorant. Yeah, there was this uh, deodorant commercial from the 80s, I think, uh, which was all about being confident. Confident enough to raise your hands, to raise your arms, because you have uh, sure, I think it was sure, deodorant. So we could call that kind of a a conditioned confidence, right? That's uh, a kind of confidence based on uh, having the best deodorant. Well, the Shambhala teachings talk about unconditioned confidence, confidence that's not based on what kind of deodorant you have or uh, what kind of car you drive or whatever. Unconditioned confidence. So what is that about? Well, that is the topic of today's talk by Shastri Ethan Nickturn. In addition to being a regular contributor to the podcast, Ethan Nickturn is the author of the book The Dharma of the Princess Bride, available now. He gave this talk at our weekly Dharma gathering a couple of weeks ago. And um, if you've been feeling a little shaky, if you've been feeling a little out of sorts, for whatever reason, I think you'll get some benefit out of this talk. Visit our website, ny.chambala.org, for all of our upcoming courses and weekend retreats. In particular, I want to point your attention to Shambhala Training Weekend 1. This is our introductory meditation weekend. Uh, if you've been listening for a while, if you're new to meditation, if you're, if you're experienced with meditation, but uh, yet haven't done one of these meditation weekends, I highly recommend Shambhala Training Weekend 1, Feel Human Again. It's happening the weekend of May 4th with David Perrin, another regular contributor to the podcast. So visit our website, uh, click the link on the homepage for that and any of our other upcoming uh, weekend retreats or weeknight courses. And now, here is Shastri Ethan Nickturn to talk to you about confidence. Raise your hand. This is a uh, a huge topic in this tradition, and um, it almost feels counterintuitive, I think, or at least counter-stereotypical uh, for a Buddhist tradition to really emphasize confidence, right? Because there's so many teachings on humility or non-ego, um, peace, equanimity. Um, the Shambhala teachings work with all of those, but our teachings really focus on being a warrior in the world, right? Being somebody who is present and awake, but in society. Um, so there's a lot of emphasis on bravery. There's a lot of emphasis, obviously, on mindfulness and compassion, but there's quite a lot of emphasis on what actually allows a person to manifest with uh, authentic presence. That's actually Shambhala's reinterpretation of egolessness for all the students of classical Buddhism in the room, that if you get completely egoless, you manifest authentic presence. Does that sound right, or does that sound like you disappear into rainbow light? Which some Buddhist teachings talk about that is what happens when you wake up. So it's confusing. Um, I think the first part of this conversation is just there has to be, and all Buddhist teachings and, and probably anyone who's paying attention to life right now, uh, and maybe why you're here, is a realization of how flimsy the conditions of our confidence are conventionally, right? How, you know, this is also why it's uh, important to be kind to other people because one person smiles at you in the morning and that's the day you have, you know? Or the, the the first really nice day in May. Everybody's just suddenly confident. You know, just and uh, there's a a line in there's these root texts of the Shambhala tradition, which in Tibetan are called terma, which are almost like prolif- uh, prophetic 
uh, prose poems that in this case were written by Chogyam Trungpa, the founder of our tradition. Um, but in one of these root texts, there's a line about confidence and about how sad it is that human beings' confidence is so flimsy, so insecure, so hard to find. And the line from Chogyam Trungpa goes, even cats and dogs have confidence. Why should human beings not have confidence too? So what I love about this line from the root teachings of Trimbala, an acknowledgement that some people are cat people and some people are dog people. <laughs> so very inclusive that way. Um, but that's an interesting question, right? What is it, do you agree with that statement, even cats and dogs have confidence? So what is it that allows that? We'll, we'll come back to that. And what is it that sometimes obstructs our confidence? So in terms of this flimsy conventional approach to confidence, this is something actually that the um, classic Buddhist teachings focus on pretty uh, intensively. Um, they don't talk about it as a lack of confidence. They more talk about this as a, as a uh, problem of attachment, problem of... Uh, a neurotic fixation on certain hooks of the world, but we could also view it as a lack of confidence or as a kind of a conventional approach to confidence. There's this teaching in classic Buddhism, it's translated in a lot of different ways, but it's called the Eight Worldly Concerns. Have people heard this teaching? Eight Worldly Concerns. Now, worldly in classic Buddhist teachings is a very confusing term because Basically, these were awakened people who kind of left the world behind and started their own counterculture. So whenever you hear worldly in the ancient teachings or sutras, it refers to like the people who are still caught up in the confusion of the world, like the people who haven't figured out that those things are not going to work yet. But it really, from our standpoint, we could think of these as like eight traps of hope and fear, like where we get caught and moments that could give us a boost of confidence or, or totally take away our confidence for a moment, but they're taken completely out of context, right? So all of a sudden we're puffed up, I'm great, or all of a sudden we're ruined, right? So there are four couplets, which makes it easier to remember. Um, and the first one, I think, is, is very New York. The first trap of hope and fear. And the couplets are, are opposites, or, or it's kind of a dialectic with each other. So the first couplet is fame and insignificance. Right. Sometimes it's translated as fame and infamy, but infamy has become kind of a sort of fame. Like it doesn't really matter if people are following you because they like you or not. <laughs> There's one person who really figured this out. <laughs> Just get people to follow you and you will be powerful. Um, so, right, the, the notion is like, people know you, they know who you are, and the generation that's coming up next, this is all completely numerical. Right. Every generation before, the statistics of fame and insignificance have been a little vaguer, but now it's like completely, right? Aren't there apps that give you your so overall social media score? So if it goes up, you're confident. If you post uh, something, they've actually supposedly think they've found the part of the brain, this is coming from a man named Judson Brewer, who's a Buddhist psychiatrist who studied addiction. They found the part of the brain that's related to how much social media we're on. And studying the activity in this part of the brain, they can kind of correlate it to how much time we spend on Facebook. Right? Because we want people to notice us. Or we want to be voyeurs to other people. And, you know... You can do this, I figured this out as an author. Did you know that Amazon updates its sales algorithm like almost hourly? 
used to be just every week, right? That was enough. Like, how am I doing? In my generation, like, the top songs were, like, I, th I think MTV had, like, every Friday night, I think it was, you would, the top songs of the week. But they updated, so you go back and check hourly, so you might buy something, because you're on their website more, right? Because you're looking at how much fame do I have, how significant am I? So this is the first couplet of conventional hope and fear, uh, flimsy confidence, the first couplet of worldly concerns. The second is gain and loss, right? So you could think about this um, financially. You could think about this in terms of your place in line at Trader Joe's. You could think about this in terms of some other um, measure of uh, just how much safety do I have? How much have I gained or lost? And you can gain and lose all the time, right? And our mind can go up and down. There's a part of our nervous system that is arranged to go up and down every time, every time there's a gain or a loss. The third one is praise and blame. Great job. It's related to fame and insignificance, for sure. This is your fault. So all of these, praise. Oh, man, praise is so... Isn't it so nice? Doesn't it... You know what the, the worst part about praise is? When somebody praises you and you realize in the middle of the praise that they're thinking of someone else? Like, it was not you that did the thing that they're like, it's a person who looks like you, or... <laughs> Blame, same way. And the deepest level of this flimsy confidence, which I think goes back to the first day in May or a winter that goes on too long, is pleasure and pain. When things feel pleasant, we feel really good about our situation. And this is where a lot of addictive behaviors start is there's there's a boost of confidence that's decontextualized that's so momentary that has very little to do with the ability to be sustained or repeated right and if we're uncomfortable we're not okay right so this is sort of the first type of confidence in the buddhist teachings is false confidence and it's in classic Buddhist teachings, it's considered worldly, chasing something in the world, chasing a, a, a momentary condition and thinking that is enlightenment or happiness or fulfillment. Now you could say, but don't cats and dogs do that all the time? It's possible. So then I was thinking about, you know, what starting to move into what actually builds confidence. And by confidence, I mean a sense of worthiness and trust in oneself. So all those people who have genuine confidence, there's, there's some situation they step into where just something, even if it's awkward, even if it's... Uh, not perfect, there's some quality of they have this, they got this, they're gonna hold the situation. Whatever comes out of this, they're working with it, it's not overwhelming them, it's not defeating them, they're doing it. And oftentimes that confidence is in the face of situations that you say are like really uh, seem difficult. You know? Maybe you think what I'm doing now seems difficult. I've made it workable, I can say that. So in that case, I have confidence in this, in this particular seat. Um, but really, what brings about actual confidence? You know? So part of this is realizing, and this is where I think the science and the neuroscience and the biology are so in support of Buddhist teachings these days, 
we have to realize how much of our system that we've inherited is not set up to think long term. And so a lot of times when the same thing happens, when we judge other people's success or gain, we get very judgmental because we see it out of context, you know. Was talking to a friend a few years ago, and this person is a visual artist, and they were bummed at who had been included in the Whitney Biennial show because there was a lot of the artists they came up with and just sort of like, what, what makes them worthy to show, right? And you could say that the world is fake and cheap, et cetera, or there's certain capitalistic tendencies at play in the art world for lots of good arguments about weird uh, things at play in the art world. But we also don't know what the other person actually put in what seeds they planted, what practices they did over a long period of time. And from a Buddhist perspective, whenever you see a person who has certain qualities, even if they don't have fame or don't have success, if you see a person and say they have qualities, your first tendency is to be like, I don't know how they got those positive. I don't, I don't know how they became so compassionate. Maybe it's just who they are. From a Buddhist perspective, what they would say is, whenever you see a person with qualities that seem like they would be worthy of confidence, positive qualities, you have to assume that the causes and conditions that bring about those qualities have both in their environment and in their being, in their personal being, been present for a long time. So you see a person who seems present, it means they've practiced mindfulness. I'm not saying they did our technique or, or Buddhist people or that they cultivated a mode of being present, that they invested in it, that it was worked through for a long period of time. So relative confidence, which is the second kind of confidence, which is the first kind of real confidence, is really being willing to practice working with the things we want to work with over a long period of time. Thinking about what do I want to cultivate? What seeds do I want to plant? You know, and everything we see about our world, the positive, the negative, the destructive, the joyful, the creative, the racist, the sexist, the inclusive, the humble, all of it comes from seeds, cultural and personal, that have been planted and watered for a long period of time. So the study of that, the study of saying, I'm going to remove myself from just the dopamine, cortisol. This doesn't mean you don't enjoy the first day of spring in May. <laughs> I'm not saying, pleasure happens, by the way. Pain happens, by the way. But it means that you stop investing so much weight in the momentary outcomes, and you start looking at what am I trying to cultivate? You know? What am I trying to build? And what can I do today to plant a few seeds that may ripen in a year? That would be the short end of relative confidence. Five years, 10 years, 10 lifetimes, this is what's the most tragic about our political system right now from the standpoint of relative Buddhist truth. Uh, and this will be the only political statement. I do not hear any politicians talking about the 22nd century on planet Earth. That should be actually, from a Buddhist standpoint, that should be every politician's pitch. Here's what we want the 22nd century to look like. Now that requires there being enough people who can support them who also can rise out of the eight worldly concerns, the trap of hope and fear, to actually envision a world that way too. Right? But this is starting to be where relative confidence comes from. It's like, you want to be a good poet? Practice being a bad poet first. You want to be a good meditator? 
definitely practice being a bad meditator for a long time, maybe forever. <laughs> maybe until your idea of good and bad is radically reframed on the meditation cushion. And you forgive yourself, which causes you to be spontaneously mindful. <laughs> That's actually how that works, in my opinion. Um, so there's a kind of study of what's called wholesome and unwholesome actions, which means that we are actually becoming curious about cause and effect on a longer term. It doesn't have to be that long a term. It's just longer than five seconds from now. So if you're, like, bored right now, you could either take the approach of, like, I'm going to fix this by whatever my thing is to fix the boredom, right? I'm going to leave a little early. I'm going to skip out the discussion. I'm going to just scratch my face this way. Or you could say, wow, this boredom thing happens a lot. Maybe I could practice cultivating something in relationship to my boredom that shifts my experience down the line. This is really how confidence starts to be built, that you start to see that it's not necessarily about outcomes because outcomes are so out of our control. They're so interdependent. You know, it's so based on what the world is doing. You know? Everybody who has these mechanisms of like, if you do this mode of confidence, if you talk to yourself this way, you will get that job. It's like, well, only if they like you, because there's another person there, and they're having their own biases and their own needs, etc. But you will cultivate some situation that will lead to an authentic presence. That's trustworthy. And I also want to point out, maybe I'll say one more political thing. The world makes this a lot easier for some people than other people. So even the cultivation of relative confidence might be easier or harder, depending on one's embodiment. But there is another kind of confidence, which is the source of this whole thing. And this is the part, I, I feel like everybody's been like, or most people have been like, yeah, that makes sense. Maybe it's felt insightful, what I've said so far about false confidence, the eight traps of hope and fear, relative confidence, the willingness to cultivate wholesome activities over a long period of time. Maybe it's just felt kind of obvious, practical. My dad likes to say that um, Buddhism is all the insights that anyone would discover if they were paying attention. But that's a big if. Um, but this third type of confidence, which is at the root of our tradition, which is going back to that monarch imagery from our meditation, is what's called ultimate confidence. And this is different. This is... Um, This is a kind of confidence that it's said is not based on causes and conditions. There's an uh, aspect of our human, humanness, our humanity, our consciousness, our awareness... that remains stable and awake no matter what is happening. Even during your biggest freak out, your biggest panic attack, I'm actually remembering because my friend uh, Bob Holman is here tonight and he's founder of the Bowery Poetry Club. And I remember I actually once, first time I ever stepped on stage at the Bowery Poetry Club, for Sacred Slam. I don't remember if you were there. I, this was like 2002. I really 
was having an anxiety attack. My legs were shaking. I got through the poem and people thanked me for, but it was like, I was like, that was not how I wanted that to go. <laughs> Has anybody ever? Uh, I, yes, I've become a good bad poet. Thank you, Bob. That means a lot. Hmm. But even then, there's some... I already had a meditation practice. I had been introduced to these teachings on basic goodness. I had been introduced to a particular body of teachings in our tradition called Wind Horse, which is related to this um, calligraphic stroke um, called the Ashe stroke, which is not actually in the shrine room. It looks like a, almost like a sword stroke, slightly phallic, um, or very phallic. Um, that represents sort of cutting through to this space, cutting through all the distractions, the jargon, the self-torture, the self-criticism to a space of um, a confidence that never was born, so it's not going to die. A sort of basic beingness. And this is something we start to glimpse in our meditation. Have you ever watched yourself fall asleep on the meditation cushion? What's watching? Chogyam Trungpa said this another way. He said, that which knows confusion cannot be confused. So when you know you're confused, there's part of you that's not confused. And learning to find confidence in that glimpse by glimpse, moment by moment, is um, what this path is all about. Now, here's the irony or the union of everything I've said. That is much easier to glimpse if we're cultivating relative confidence. If we're cultivating circumstances where you're saying like, yes, I have meditated every day for the last week. You will have more glimpses of your vulnerability, but you will also have more glimpses of, I can handle this. Insert, fill in the blank, you know? So that's what I would like, I, sometimes I have to get into fights with the secret. <laughs> because I don't believe that the universe wants you to have whatever you want to have. I don't, do you believe that? <laughs> and I don't believe that that would lead to a BMW. <laughs> but the idea that maybe if I touch my inherent confidence, I can work with this. And the path to touching one's inherent confidence is actually saying I see that if I do certain things over the long period of time, it's a struggle, it's two steps forward, one steps back, but I feel better. So unconditional confidence and relative confidence go together. And they also are supported by an enriched environment, which usually means friends, who are also trying in their own struggle to cultivate relative confidence and who are willing to make fun of in a loving way because we all get caught there and we live in a world that's based on getting caught there, the eight traps of hope and fear. So I don't think you can do this on your own. I'm not saying you need me. <laughs> Definitely don't mean, need me. Um, but we do need an environment that supports the cultivation of our trust in ourselves little by little and that allows us to have glimpses that there never was a problem in here. There are lots of problems out there, but there was never a problem with this. It's wise, it's strong, it's stable, it can, it can deal. So this is the interesting interplay. 
But yes, we do have to playfully critique false confidence because we're moving further into a world that seems to say that that's, that's all there is. And it's, get, it's growing more cynical too because the world does seem to also be getting wiser. That's the part that feels really sad to me is people are believing in the traps of hope and fear less, but also believing there's no alternative. So if I got to do something, I'll gain more followers. But there is an alternative. And the world is a manifestation of what we've cultivated collectively and individually. The part, I'll just say one more thing and then open it up. The part of the secret that leads to something that I really do believe in is the notion of connecting with something bigger than yourself to find support, which could be those reflections on the people who manifest genuine confidence, just a reminder that it can be done, could be connecting with one's spiritual lineage or one's family ancestry, could be connecting with bodhisattvas, these saint-like archetypes that supposedly are compassionate figures. So that I believe in. You can actually call for help. Prayers do work that way. But the idea that we're not going to have to then plant seeds and grow um, fruit over time, that's just not the way reality works. So it is really good to study people who have genuine confidence because they probably at least have the relative confidence. They've sat in this seat long enough not to have the panic attack. This seat's way easier for me still than like getting on stage and reading my work. But I've done either enough to have some relative confidence. But in this tradition, there's also that moment of just the person is inhabiting their basic goodness. They're inhabiting their wisdom. And that's, I think, why he brings to mind cats and dogs, even though they are kind of chasing hope and fear. Cats and dogs, and I would also say babies, although babies seem to carry a lot of karma from previous times as well, cats and dogs are not confused about their cat and dogness whereas quite often humans are confused about our humanity. And if we could just say, this is what being human is, that might give us confidence. Could you help me with the uh, throne metaphor? I, I, I've had glimpses of it, and it's, it's a lovely, I can have this kind of, yeah. Yeah. But then immediately it's like, no, you know, right. kings and queens, wrong, bad. You know, it's a good liberal, you know. That's a good liberal. <laughs> yeah. 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 So I was wondering if you could help me yeah. work with it better. Sure, sure. I mean, uh, I have similar questions about it. But again, so the metaphor is to full, fully you think of a beautiful throne. It's a broken-hearted monarch. It's a monarch who is very friendly to themselves, very tender towards himself, and sees and cares for the suffering in the world. So that's the complete metaphor. So it's not, you know, I remember going to Burger King as a kid and you get the little, it's, uh, and it's not, uh, it's not dominion over other people. Jimmy Carter, yeah. I think it's a challenge. I, I think, you know, so the kingdom of Shambhala was a, um, uh, a Himalayan version of this sort of hidden enlightened society. Interestingly enough, the most, other than like the lost city of Atlantis, recent movie had a very, Black Panther, the kingdom of Wakanda, hidden enlightened kingdom, in a, from an African standpoint, has the exact same sort of narrative structure. 
So the kingdom of Shambhala is where the name Shambhala comes from, and it's this idea of people who are practicing meditation and was ruled by enlightened rulers who were compassionate and was therefore a very uh, functioning society. Uh, so I think that's where the monarch idea comes from, and how do we translate that into democratic, postmodern uh, society, I think, uh, is the sense of you're taking your seat, and when you're taking your seat, you're really willing to show up and inhabit your spot and be in the room as you are. Um, but you're not worried about having power over others. So it might be a little bit of a democratic socialist monarch that we're talking about here. Quaker, okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, although I went to a, a Quaker meeting recently and I will say the pews don't really um, encourage monarchical posture, right? Part of what Shogun Trungpa felt about the monarch is he felt it was very important that when people sit, obviously sitting can be painful and you need to take a resting posture, but having good head and shoulders was really important to one's own, uh, the, the um, respiratory pranayamic notion of breathing, but also to one's sense of dignity. So, um, I don't know. But, uh, yeah, some kind of uh, real willingness to lead but not have power over others, right? To really take your seat in the world. Um, I live with three cats and I work as a dog walker, so I spend a lot of time with... Do they, they don't... Um, come together, do they? No, that okay. would not be good. <laughs> but what I've noticed is that they, they don't sit around and think about being dogs or cats. They just do their thing. Right. I mean, they're just in the moment. If they want yes. a treat, that's all that matters. And dogs, I think more than cats, are very, very eager to please. Yes. And, but all of them certainly have their emotions and their moods. But I think what you talked about, humans, we're so aware. I think we're so aware of just being human and trying to figure it out. Whereas dogs and cats, they just do their thing. Yeah. So yeah. this prefrontal cortex situation that we have going on. Because people will ask a lot of the time, they're like, I think my dog is enlightened. <laughs> I, I, seriously, I've heard, like, people have asked me that at least a hundred times. I am not <laughs> overestimating in a class in front of other people. Like, what about my dog or cat? Usually dog, though. Um, so, so they are, you're right, so they're inhabiting a part of the awakened mind that we're talking about here because they're really just being what they are. There's not a second guessing, right? Mm -hmm. There's also not the sort of human realm function, which is how classic Buddhism would say it, the, the neuroscientists would say the prefrontal cortex or the neocortex or something like that, where they can reason through and develop insight into their situation. In other words, they're always going to chase the treat, oh, yes. right? They're always, there's never going to be a sense of like, oh, maybe I should open my own dog food store. That would, I could make a living off of this, right? Or like, maybe I should stop for a moment and question whether I need the treat, you know? So we want to combine what's great about the, the limbic brain with the neocortex and the, the mind and the heart. They definitely have the heart. Yes. Right? So, but there is something to be learned, and it has to do with this ultimate confidence that sometimes you really do have to kind of abruptly cut through all the discursive second-guessing that goes, but what if this, but what if that, but what if... And you, you notice it in any, any of the situations where a person is manifesting confidence, you know, shooting a free throw in front of 20,000 people or Beyonce on stage. The, the, the discursive second guessing of self is not happening at that moment. It's just manifestation. There's some inhabiting of a being's essence going on, which is why it's so compelling. You know. But it's good that we have the, the higher brain. It just gives us, more, it gives us more tools and it gives us more baggage. Yeah. Your dog might be enlightened. I don't know. 
I'm a, I'm more Some of them have baggage, too. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, I was going to ask you, that when you talk about that ultimate realm of confidence, is it like being true to yourself, almost? Yeah, yeah. So it has to do with that term authentic presence, right? But there's sort of just, like right now, even as we're talking to each other, there's just a part that knows, that's what witnessing, right? That's not like, what am I going to say next? If I was trying to figure out what I was going to say next to you all the time, it wouldn't feel very authentic, right? It's just like, here we are. And uh, so, yeah, and then I think there's also the being true to yourself could mean really clarifying what your intention is, right? So if you're doing things in life that are going against your long-term intention or aspiration, how do I sort of realign. So that's another way to think about being true to yourself. But the ultimate confidence is just in the moment, there's just a part of you that's bigger than any problem. That's the only way I know how to say it. What's the relationship between ultimate confidence that you're talking about and, the, and basic goodness? Yeah. U ultimate confidence is what sees basic goodness. Is it the same thing? Uh, no, because basic goodness refers to everything. It's just b basic uh, means at, at the root, right? It, basic goodness could alternatively be translated as original purity, if that's helpful. That at the root, ex like right now, just tuning into your experience right now, whatever it is, if you're a little too hot, if you're ready for this to be over, if you're loving it, There's just no problem on a certain level. Do you feel what I'm saying? I mean, there are lots of, once you get out of this realm into like, what do we want to cultivate? What do we not want to cu cultivate? What's been cultivated that's harmful, et cetera. Then you get into the problems. But for a moment, just to say like, I appreciate this. And the, the way I would say it is what's being appreciated is just the basic goodness of experience. You know, which we first access in this tradition, that's why we meditate on the body before we go into the mind, we want to reconnect with our sense perceptions. You know, that's why we put flowers on the shrine, things like that. That's why it's fairly colorful in here, that there's some waking up through just like the simple moments that we often miss. And I promise you, New York, if you're not in your world, which sometimes at the end of a long day, trying to come out of myself, I do have to go back into my world, so I understand that, but try just doing a mindful walk down 6th Avenue, if you're walking down 6th Avenue, leaving here. There is so much to appreciate. Even the person who's about to walk into you because they're on their phone, and that would be you, except you just came from a meditation class, so you understand the irony of being that person right now. Even that person, there's something to appreciate. And what's appreciating that and saying, oh, I can rest here more often, I can glimpse this more often, that's ultimate confidence. And the teachings on wind horse, which are taught in the Shambhala curriculum, are really kind of these series of pithy instructions for going back there quickly. Having glimpsed it, then you forget it. And how do I remember it? How do I recapture it before this meeting? you know, or before this date, or before this talk. How do I re-glimpse basic okayness, you know, uh, ba some basic appreciation? From this perspective, Sixth Avenue is magical. Now that you mentioned that, how to reconnect to that uh, trustworthiness, is there, do you, I mean, is there a technique or, or it's just meditation before the, like a big moment in your life? Or yeah. You have to... There are techniques. Some of them are sort of given when we've established the relative confidence of meditating. But if you want a simple one, just come into your body right now. Specifically connect with your heart. Be willing to inhabit the awkwardness of that. 
And just see if you can, from your heart, send your awareness out so that there's a sense of accommodating the space that your body's in. So come into your heart and then expand your awareness from that connection to your heart. You can do this in 30 seconds. If it feels awkward, you're doing it right. So not to project onto you all, but I just noticed the energy in the room completely shift. Maybe that's just in my mind, but... So there's a coming into oneself and then a willingness to go out from there. But anytime you can remember your body, chances are you'll make less of a mess of things than you were going to otherwise. You might still knock the thing over, but there'll be some presence with oneself that'll be more authentic. So hope that was helpful. Yeah, very helpful. Um... So you mentioned the secret. Um, so I, I believe in it in a, in a weird way, um, just That's attracting cool. things because I, yes. I experienced it at work. So you'll, like, I'll have, like, well, okay, so a long time ago, plastic used to be, I guess, uh, something that used to hook me at work when I would ask people for uh, paper or plastic and they take plastic and it would just annoy me for some reason. Um, because then, of the environmental? Uh, well, that, for sure. Um, but, it, yeah, and, and it being wasteful and um, it's, it's harder to bag things in plastic. Ah. Um, and, and I was just thinking about myself, obviously. Um, but it, eventually um, I noticed that the more I thought that way, the more people would ask me for plastic and 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 I would just and then one day I was just like you know what it doesn't matter it doesn't it it really doesn't matter so mm -hmm. sometimes I would just be like is paper okay and people were more inclined to just get paper um <laughs> for some reason um and then um eventually it just it just doesn't matter anymore mm -hmm. so it's the same thing that I would tell uh, you know my fellow co-workers I, I would just tell them just just do whatever they want. It's fine. Mm. Um, but the same thing happens when you get tough customers at the register. Um, once you get like that one tough customer, it, it feels like they just keep coming because um, I feel like you're just so hyper-focused mm -hmm. and take it so personal and it, and it kind of hurts your confidence in a way. Um, you keep getting tough customers and for some reason, like I haven't had, I get one tough customer here and there, um, but I... I don't let it derail me the way that it, that it used to. I don't take it as personal, and I try to tell people that at, at work, too. Um, but, but I do believe that you, you do attract certain things. Um, yes. You know, I, I don't know. It's just, it's just my experience. But um, it, it, when someone is, is rude to you, sometimes it, it can hurt, like, your confidence in a yeah. way. Um, and when you don't take it as personal, because, you know, we get people from all walks of life, um, and, and people bring their problems into every Trader Joe's. Um, but, <laughs> you know, it's... it's do, you, do you work at Trader Joe's right here? I don't work, I've worked at Chelsea, uh, but I work in the Brooklyn location. Um, okay. And, and our so lines, please, everybody be compassionate to everybody who works in Trader Joe's because we have a friend there. Um, but yeah, it's just one of those things. I tell crew members all the time, like, if you're not so hyper-focused on whether it's paper or plastic, it's going to be fine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I just want to say I bring my own bags. <laughs> Which might be even more irritating. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> got you, got you. This is, this is wonderful. So, Alex, I want to speak to the attracting things because we do believe in that, right? So there is the, this notion, there's a principle that comes from Tibetan Buddhism that comes from the more shamanistic or mystical side of the teachings, which is the notion that, obviously, I talked about planting seeds as just sort of a more natural, like, cause and effect long-term. Like, if you, if you plant 
um, an apple tree eventually, eventually you, if causing conditions support it, you will have apples. So that's not, from a scientific standpoint, that's not about attracting like the apple fairies or the universe give it, wanting to give you apples. It's just understanding how causes and conditions work. But there's a principle in this tradition called drala, which refers basically, to translate it means, the energy that is beyond aggression or the beings who are beyond aggression. And it's in full uh, Tibetan shamanism, the notion was that these were like sort of the protectors of an area, like the invisible beings who inhabited an area. And the idea is that when you become more present, when you connect with your intention, when you rouse your um, intention to be a benefit to both self and others, in your case, when you let go of a kind of fixated irritation, um, it can attract a different kind of energy, right? But it's coming out of the, the intention to be a benefit to both self and others, right? So it's, it's, it's a little more expansive than just the universe wants you to have what you want. Um, but uh, it's also interesting to see, and this is always fascinating, have you ever noticed that two people can do the exact same job with a totally different attitude and it can be just as stressful? That's because one of them has decided to cultivate different qualities. They both know they're stuck for those hours in that job and, and one of the people has said, I'm gonna actually make this my practice because that is gonna attract different energy. And whether that energy comes internally, externally, whether there's little fairies who send the people to you, whether the universe uh, wants you to have it. I think I only object to the notion of the universe being this sort of game show host. Um, does that make sense? Um, but I totally hear you. And uh, that interplay, I mean, now we're talking about awake society, right? We're not, we don't have to talk about, like, this doesn't have to get super theoretical about, like, communism versus capitalism. Versus, it's just like, are we willing to be present with this situation? When you're serving somebody, when you're being served by somebody else, are you willing to acknowledge there's another human there and show up? And then good things tend to happen. So I totally believe in that law of attraction. But thank you for putting up with us. And I'm feeling lack of confidence because my question is, I can't quite work it out fully in my mind. But, um, and so it, it, it just reminds me that like in certain areas of my life, I feel quite confident and in others, not at all. Yeah. And um, I guess I'm just wondering about um, the diversity of confidence and how oh, yeah. you, how the tradition would explain it. Um, and also uh, karmically how it's explained. Um, yeah. And especially, um, you know, if, if people have um, different uh, experiences of, uh, well, I mean, let's take, you know, structural violence, mm -hmm. um, how that would affect people differentially. And yeah, so if you can just say a little bit about it. Thank you. Sure. I'll try to be pithy. But just to handle for one person, the notion of different areas of one's life having different levels of confidence. Is that something anybody experiences that one area of life you got? I mean, every student I work with has this and myself, I have this too. Like one area of my life, I totally trust basic goodness. I totally have confidence in myself. I'm totally able to be generous to others. This other area, I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm scared, you know, I freak out a lot. I'm mean to myself, mean to other people, etc. cetera. Um, so I think karmically, I think what the tradition would say is that it just means that there's certain, um, what we could call like mental formations in one, that relate to one area based on previous uh, ingrained habitual patterns, which we may have learned from ourself, we may have learned from others earlier in life, we may have learned from parental figures, and Buddhism does psychoanalysis one better and says it might be from a previous life. Which you could say that's hoo-ha, or you could say, okay, I have even more reason to forgive myself now, because it could, I've, could have been lacking confidence. Like to go out on a date and realize you have no confidence in that and just have the thought, maybe this is something I've been struggling with for lifetimes. <laughs> that lets me, that when I was single, that let me off the hook, that thought. 
made me uh, more able to forgive myself and show up. Um, so there's all different reasons for one person. And, and other areas, it could just be like you were taught how to manifest with your wisdom mind and your basic goodness. You either were able to mirror somebody who just kind of modeled a, the kind of confidence you were looking for, or um, you came with it. Who knows? You know, or you developed, you learned how that system worked. Uh, so what I would suggest is studying the area where you do have confidence. What allows you to show up, to take your seat, so to speak, even if it's a standing confidence? What allows you to take your seat in that area that maybe has some insight that could be slowly applied to the other area? Maybe, it, maybe it's a sense of humor. Um, maybe it's just a, more of a willingness to make mistakes. Um, but study the area that you're confident in first, rather the area that you're not confident in. Does, in terms of oppressive structural forces, um, there's cultural karma too, you know, and it puts groups of people into different uh, habitual positions of habitual patterns. And so anybody who views uh, karma as entirely this individualistic thing is not really looking at the Buddhist teaching on interdependence. And that has to be brought into any understanding of karma. Too often in Buddhist history, karma was taught as only an individual through line of like, if you're experiencing a lot of anger, it must be because you cultivated angry patterns or, or did harmful things. It's never like, oh, because you're born into this oppressive family structure or oppressive societal structure. Or, so we need to really quickly evolve the view of karma into a much more interdependent arena. But we always have to study ourselves first because it's the only mind and heart we have full access to. So, um, but I hope that's, that's, this, that's a really long conversation. But to bring it back to different confidence levels in different areas of your life, study where you do have confidence and see what's happening there that can be applied to the place that you're a basket case. <laughs> or maybe accepting that you're a basket case is why you have confidence. Um, Just, um Emma Gonzalez yeah. and the young woman named Naomi, I lost her last name. Wadler? 11, what's her last name? I think it's Wadler. 11 like years that. old, yeah. big hair. Who? Talk about confidence, but I'm worried about them because I know about standing in front of thousands of people as a young activist and then falling apart. So I think we should find understand the foundations and the supports and the ways that we can be behind them, uh, these brave kids. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Emma Gonzalez led probably the largest compassion meditation that's happened in United States history for five, about five minutes. So yeah, that's what happened Saturday. Um, yeah, I agree. I agree that we need to, that is the other part of confidence is creating, and that's why enlightened society is so much part of these teachings is it's so much easier to wake up if there's a system, like could you imagine a society where y you go to Trader Joe's and you're checking out and you bow to each other because you realize how much interchange there is and then you say, how are you? Alex, nice, you know, I mean they wear name tags, but you know the person's name. You care, you know? It's not just, give me my dumplings. Um, so the, the, the interdependent support structure is incredibly crucial to these teachings, yeah. Thank you. So thank you all for, uh, I know you're, we're sort of here for ourselves, but we also really support each other's practice. And um, thank you. Thank you, Shastri Ethan Nickturn. Thanks, everybody, for listening to the podcast. Visit our website, ny.shambhala.org, for all of our upcoming courses and weekend retreats. If you live in a different city, there's probably a Shambhala Meditation Center near you. Look us up. But if you are in the New York City area, 
Our weekly Dharma gathering is every Tuesday night at 7 o'clock. You're invited. Come, feel confident about uh, joining the event and meeting your fellow meditators and the teachers that you hear on this podcast week after week. Tell your friends about the podcast, by the way. We like that. And um, until next week. Later. <laughs>